0: Monday, July 15th, 2019. I'm Shannon, and the episode you're about to hear starts off with an interview that Stacy and I did with author Lauren Kate, so definitely stay tuned for that if you are interested in hearing her talk about her latest novel, The Orphan Song. And after that, I will have your guide to this week's new releases, so the week of July 16th, 2019. But before we get into the episode, we, of course, have the usual housekeeping information. You can find us on Facebook and on Twitter by searching Book Bistro Podcast. Once you're there, if you're on Facebook, you can like and or follow the page, or you can join our Facebook listener group so you can talk with us and with other podcast listeners. On Twitter, you can tweet at us. You can send a direct message. Um, Or if you're not a big social media person and you still like to get a hold of us, you can do that by sending an email to thebookbistropodcast at gmail.com. So that is pretty much all the introductory stuff I have for now. I hope you enjoy the interview with Lauren Kate and I'll be back in just a bit with new release info. Welcome to another edition of the Book Beastrow Podcast. This is Shannon and Stacy is with me. But even more important than that, we are joined today by New York Times and internationally bestselling author Lauren Kate. Her latest novel, which is also her first book for adults, which is called The Orphan's Song, will be released on June 25th. So at the time of recording, that's tomorrow. So Lauren, thank you so much for coming on to Book Bistro and chatting with us today. Thank you
1: for having me. I'm glad to be here.
0: You are very welcome. Could we start out with a brief introduction to the Orphan Song for listeners?
1: Yeah, so the year is 1737. This is a very decadent moment in the history of the venetian republic this is like the era of casanova this is an era where everyone is wearing masks um year-round to work and to play not just to go to the carnival parties that we think of when we think of venice but truly like to go to the market and buy a piece of fish for dinner they were wearing a full face mask um it's a strange time when it was considered very unfashionable to be out in society with your spouse. That's what lovers were for. Um, <laughs> and it was also the height of the Baroque musical era. So this is like when Vivaldi is becoming coming up in his career. And he was actually teaching at one of these um, orphanages where my book is set. Um, there's an orphanage in Venice in this time called the Hospital of the Incurables. And it became... Um, really one of the original music conservatories in history. And the young girls who were raised there, um, again, in order to be given something to contribute to society, they were taught to sing and play music. Um, They were taught by the era's best maestros like Vivaldi. And for whatever reason, they became the most famous musicians in the world. People traveled from all over to see them perform. It was like, a stop on the the tourism train. Um, like the wealthy people in England, when they came of age, they would go to Rome to see the Vatican. They would go to Florence to see the David, and then they would go to Venice to see these orphan singers. Um, <laughs> That's what's amazing. unusual about it, yeah? <laughs> the, what's unusual about these girls is that even though they could reach such acclaim and success and fame when they joined the choir they had to sign an oath that was basically like signing their lives away to the church. They were not permitted to leave the church. And if they ever did leave the church, some of them ended up getting married or some of them went on to nunneries later. They were never allowed to sing or play music again outside of the church.
0: Wow. It was so fascinating to me, that
1: part of it. Yeah. So of course my, when I discovered that my mind immediately went to, the little rebel girl who would that would not be okay with you know she she wants to sing she welcomes the fame and the acclaim and she's extremely talented young soprano but she also really needs to break free she wants to live somewhere else where no one knows she was ever an orphan um and it's takes her in dangerous and exciting directions um, that require her you know sneaking out late at night of the orphanage and dunning a mask and stepping into another personality. So you
0: also have kind of at the center of this story um, a love story. Can you speak a little bit about that? Yeah so um, the
1: lives of the girls and the boys within this orphanage were kept extremely separate Um, to the point where they would never even see one another. They would not know that the other sex existed, really. They had separate wings, separate entrances, separate dining halls, separate nurseries, everything. And the boys were not taught the musical trade. They um, were basically fed and clothed until they came of age and could get, like, an apprenticeship somewhere in the city. So they didn't have this... Their lives were far less strict um, and rigid than the girls, but they also didn't have this chance to, to rise up into fame or fortune. Um, But one of the boys who um, is growing up, you know, alongside, but oblivious to Violetta, the main female protagonist, um, his name is Mino. And he is unique at the orphanage because he was abandoned a bit later than Mm -hmm. the average orphan. He was actually about five years old. And so he remembers his mother. And um, he has he has memories of who she was and what it felt like to be loved by someone best of all. And, um, he has a suspicion that there's some darkness around his abandonment that his mother did not wish to give him up and was forced to, in order to protect him. So he feels he, he, if he could only track her down and find her, that he could get at the truth of his abandonment. Um, Violetta kind of wants to run away from her abandonment and and pretend it didn't happen. And Mino wants to run headfirst at his and, and face the darkness that he wants to find in there. Um, and the two of them are drawn to each other. They find each other one day, both uh, rebelling and sneaking up to a rooftop <laughs> they're not supposed to be on. <clears throat> and um, they begin a love story that circles around... Um, music, a shared love of music, and a shared feeling that life has more in store for them than what they're able to um, grasp at the orphanage. Um, the book is told in alternating points of view, uh, one chapter from Violetta's and one chapter from Mino's, and I found as I wrote it that the, ch- the, the lovers, um, they, they split kind of early in the novel, they lose each other. And the book is a kind of cat and mouse chase of, of finding each other again, especially in a city where everyone's wearing masks and they're having to hide their identities. They're also trying to find um, this one person that they've loved and lost. And I found as I wrote it that the chapters got shorter and shorter in length because that I, I, it, it was not intentional, but I, I think that the lovers wanted to get closer and closer to each other. Um, And so (laughs) it became kind of like a musical piece, like the tempo picked up and picked up until this one Mm -hmm. scene where crescendos, where they finally reunite and the, the point of view division collapses and they're suddenly both telling the same story simultaneously.
0: One of my favorite things about the novel is I sort of feel like your vivid descriptions of Venice almost made it like a character in your book. And it was just so fascinating. Can you tell us a little bit about the the research that you had to do? Like how did you learn so much about this really amazing environment for your story?
1: Yeah, I've always been fascinated by Venice. it's it's the first place I ever went outside of the country. i was I went as like a twelve year old girl in seventh grade with my English class. Um, oh wow. And so it's always been a place that was really special, and where I had had profoundly surprising experiences. Um, to write this book, I, I really wanted to try to travel back in time. Um, and it's, it's not that it's effortless to do that. But with Venice, I think it does kind of wear its history on its sleeve. You know, you can wander through some dark alleys, and they probably look almost like they used to look a few hundred years ago. Um, you can sit in a gondola that hasn't changed shape or size or speed um, in hundreds of years and, and kind of get lost in these waterways. Um, when I went to do the research for this book, I spent 10 days with Venetian historians and Venetian musicians and the, the keepers of these orchestra. Uh, these orphanages artifacts where I could touch Mm. the robes that the girls used to wear I could feel their violins which again that shape hasn't changed in hundreds of years Um, one of the most poignant things I remember discovering on my research trip was um, something called a half token which was a, a a little artifact either like a scrap of fabric or a painting that when a mother had to abandon her child and surrender the baby to the church, um, often she would keep half of a painting and give the other half to the baby, leave it on the baby's body so that if her circumstances ever changed and she was able to provide for the, the child, that there would be some proof of who her baby was. Um, there would be some bond connecting the two of them. And I just remember standing before that glass case, looking down at just hundreds and hundreds of half tokens, and there was oh, only wow. one that had been made whole. There was only oh. one, that, you know, they they had found one another again. And to do the research, I had left my own uh, children back home in America, and they were both quite young at the time. And so it just was really heart wrenching to me to mm-hmm. consider what it might be like not to not to reunite.
0: Wow. Were there things that you found particularly challenging about writing this book?
1: Um, I mean, I think a big part of the research for me was getting the music right, because I'm not a a trained musician in any way. I don't, there are not instruments I can play, though I've now taken a few violin, violin lessons in order to write this book. Um, I grew up as a ballet dancer, so music is very physically in me. It's ingrained in the way I, I move through the world, but there's not like a vocabulary for the way that dancers interact with music. And for musicians, there's such an extensive vocabulary and, and such a really specific way of, of talking about music, reading music and, and inhabiting music. Um, so I think trying to make sure I got the... Musician's perspective as clearly rendered as I could was challenging. Um, so I did, a, a friend of mine put me in touch with um, a violinist at the LA Philharmonic who I met mm-hmm. with a few times and went over some of the musical passages with her and kind of got some uh, details a little bit more, you know, finessed with her help. You know, I remember one of the things she told me was that every time a violinist gets a new violin, one of the most important things to do is take it to the place where you're going to be performing, because a violin sounds completely different, you know, like in a cavernous symphony hall, than it does outside in a piazza, than it does, you know, oh, yes. in the basement of a, you know, a, an orphanage <laughs> with all the windows closed. So she. Um, Took w- walked with, with me with her violin and said, let's see how it sounds in here. Let's see how it sounds outside. Let's see how it sounds if we open the window. And it was amazing to pay such close attention um, and really get the musician's
0: perspective. I love music, but that's something I would never have thought about, like the, the variation in the sounds. Like, that's very interesting. Um, <clears throat> I feel like every author has a very unique um, writing process. It's very, um, individual. Um, do you mind sharing with us a little bit about your writing process when you're sitting down to start planning out a novel?
1: Um, I get very overwhelmed by the blank page, you know, by sitting down at a desk and opening a word document and just that blinking cursor is kind of <laughs> haunting me. So yeah. one of the things that I've learned to do to combat that is, um, Each morning I start out my writing day with a hike. Um, I go into the hills behind my house and I walk for about an hour and I just think about the scene I'd like to write that day. And I try to compose probably three to five sentences in my mind of the beginning of the scene so that Mm -hmm. by the time I get home and I sit down and I open my computer I'm just typing I'm just typing out something that I've memorized and and kind of finessed by then so that hopefully it doesn't happen every day but hopefully that I'm in a a kind of flow and I have something to to go off of um and I don't get quite so overwhelmed by you know how am I ever gonna get into the scene today Mm -hmm. um I do like to plan my books out beforehand and and make uh, an outline, a pretty detailed outline, chapter by chapter so that I know where I'm going. But um, honestly, the greatest joy for me in writing is when my characters come alive to the point where they don't want to do what I wanted them to do. And <laughs> Hi, they yes. turn left and I thought they were going to go right and they stumble into something completely surprising. Um, that used to be something that I resisted, but I had to learn by you know, battling it out with a few different characters over the past 10 years that that's the sign that the book is beginning to come into itself. And um, you just, when your character beckons you to go somewhere surprising, you you don't ask questions, you just go.
0: So you originally wrote young adult novels. Um, In fact, Fallen, which is the series that you are most well-known for, is not only young adult, but young adult fantasy. So I'm curious to know what inspired you to write something that's more geared toward adults? Um,
1: You know, I'm not sure I knew that I was really making this kind of switch when I got the idea for the book. The characters initially presented themselves to me as quite young, you know, they were teenagers, they they are Mm -hmm. teenagers when Mm -hmm. they meet each other in this story. Um, and they, it's not like they get to be all that old. They probably, the the passage of time is, is less than five years over the course of the book. Um, so they're really just out of their teenage years anyway, but they are inhabiting a life that kind of represents a more full scope, um, that includes marriage and children and things that are, you know, off limits more or less to young adult fiction, um, You know, I honestly, I think it's as simple as the fact that my children were really little when I started writing this book. And I wanted to explore not just like the falling in love part of the story, but what that love can make, um, which is family and children. And, um, you know, there's like an existential shift, I think, that happens when you become a parent that I guess I was just interested in exploring.
0: So now that you have written both young adult and novels for adults, is there one or the other that feels more natural to you?
1: you know, I've heard Judy Bloom say that every writer has a writing age where your, your characters are often going to just naturally be that age when they come to you um, because of something that happened to you that was formative when you were that age. And so my characters are, so far, they are... Um, just around the age of 17 when I start writing about them. Um, And again, the difference is just that you, I think with a YA novel, you're really, the lens is very narrow. And I don't mean Mm -hmm. that in a pejorative way. It's just, you're looking through the eyes of this character at what this character would care about. And so for teens, that's yourself and other teens. I mean, you might love your mother and admire your teacher or your, you know, soccer coach, but you don't, um, we're not interested in the soccer coach's fears and aspirations, right? We're just Mm -hmm. interested in the teen perspective. And so I think that can be both um, beneficial as a writer, because it really lets you sink in deep where you want to be and stay in one place. Um, But, you know, I, I found in this book, it was also really exciting to inhabit different aspects of the world and to be able to think about life in a larger scope. Um, so I, I really do like doing both, and I'm sure I'll, I'll continue to do both.
0: And speaking of that, are you able to share with us what's coming next for you in terms of your next project?
1: Yeah, I've just finished the first draft of my next novel, which Yay. is um, also <laughs> historical fiction. Um, Excellent. And it's... Um, Three Prostitutes Solving <gasps> a Mystery on the Front Lines of the Civil War. Oh, oh my God. <laughs> when
0: oh, can we have this? Coming? I
1: know. I, I cannot wait to finish this book. I really want to, you know, I, I'm the first draft is always the hardest part. And so now, obviously, I'm taking a few weeks off to go and discuss the Orphan Song and travel around. But um, I'm really eager to get, to get back to these characters once I'm back and, and you know, get,
0: finalize their stories on the page. Oh, I'm so, so excited for this. And I am not um, a patient reader. Unfortunately, I, <laughs> I fully respect, you know, people's writing processes. And obviously, I've, I know that books don't just hop out of people's minds fully written. Um, but it doesn't make the waiting for someone's next book um, any easier, unfortunately. No, <laughs> especially when it's such an interesting topic. Yes, I love that. So, yeah. yeah. And there yeah, are a lot of Civil War set books coming out now, so I feel like you'll really be opening up, you know, something that we haven't seen so much of lately.
1: Yeah, especially not with women, you know. It's there, true. There, yeah. There's certainly a lot of, even doing my research for this, there's so many um, stories by men and about men in the Civil War, but to the female stories, I mean, they're yeah it's a it's a different and kind of undocumented part of history is the female experience especially for a a marginalized character like a prostitute Mm -hmm. um yes but i found there's um there's a real general general hooker was a a union general and he traveled with a band of women he he just that was important to him and i guess Mm -hmm. beneficial to his soldiers and i um kind of stumbled upon a historical marker about him one day and i was thinking just these women must have some of the most interesting stories of the civil war to be on the front lines, doing that work. What brought them to it? What did they leave with? You know, I, I, it's fascinating.
0: So when we can't wait to find some answers from your next. It's true. Hopefully that the the time will pass quickly. (laughs) Right. (laughs) So when you're not writing, are you a big reader?
1: Yes. I mean, even when I am writing, I'm a big reader. I am always, I'm always reading a physical book and I'm always listening to an audio book. Oh, oh, beautiful. beautiful. Audiobooks, I love audio books so much. Um, yeah. And actually I'm so happy with the way that the orphan song audio came out. I got to pick the narrator. <sighs> and oh, she's Cassandra. We love friends. Cassandra Campbell. Yes. She's so, so good. Great. Isn't she? yes. Yes. great. And she does Italian accents for the dialogue. It's really awesome. <laughs> so
0: great. Yeah. We were given, um, advanced copies of the of the ebook for this interview. And when I saw that Cassandra Campbell was listed as the narrator for the audio, I was like, oh, that's that's so, so great.
1: She is spectacular. I actually went to the studio. It's not far from my house. So I went to the studio one of the days she was recording. (gasps) And um, I arrived at the moment where she was reading like the climactic scene. And it was just, it was so exciting.
0: That's the best. (laughs) I love that. So have you read or listened to anything lately that you would like other people to know about? We're big on book recommendations here.
1: You know, my favorite Thing that I've read in the past couple of years, and it's actually an audiobook that when I, <laughs> on my little subscription plan, like if I finish the book I'm listening to before the month is up and I get my next credit, I just yeah. start listening to this one again. I've probably listened to it four times, is um, Circe by Madeline Miller. It's oh, amazing. I have that here. It's absolutely amazing.
0: Yeah, I have it here. I have not picked it up yet. And I also I just to. finished
1: um, Normal People by Sally Rooney, which I thought was really really interestingly done really good
0: I've heard good things about both of those um do you find that you have kind of a different experience when you're reading a book in print versus listening to one
1: I don't I don't think so I mean it when I first started listening to audiobooks probably three years ago it was challenging for me because I've never considered myself like an oral learner Mm -hmm. Um, I'm much more a visual learner. Uh, and so it was it was almost like I had to train myself how to pay attention to having a story read to me. But um, by now I just I think it's so immersive. There are certain books that I prefer, even though I know the audiobooks are excellent. Like I read Lincoln and the Bardo um, in like the physical book form. I read it at jury duty and just was like weeping <laughs> in the waiting room. Um, and then I tried to listen to the audiobook as I was doing some of this historical th- the research for the Civil War book, um, and I know it's a great audiobook. I mean, it's a full cast. It's got like oh. it's it's excellently produced. But I had such a distinct experience reading it in my own voice in my mind that mm-hmm. I struggled with listening to the audiobook.
0: That's fair. So, can you let listeners know the best way to interact with you online? Yes, I um, am all over social media,
1: as we all are. Um, yes. <laughs> my handles on Instagram and Twitter are Lauren Kate Books. And on Facebook, I believe it's Lauren Kate Author. Um, and then my website is LaurenKateBooks.net. Excellent. And, um, yeah, I love I love hearing from readers online. So I would love
0: to hear from any of you listening right now. That is amazing. So before we let you dash off to your next interview, I just want to thank you again for joining us today. Okay. Now it is time for new books. Because Tuesdays are the best day of the week, many, many new books are released. Now, as I say that, I'm looking at the list of things that I want to talk about today, and This one is a little more sparse than some previous weeks have been. Um, There are definitely things that I'm excited about, but just fewer of them for some reason. As always, though, this is not a comprehensive list. And if you feel that there's a really big release that I didn't mention, definitely let me know. The more feedback I get from you, the easier it is for me to curate these lists to kind of fit um, the needs of the overall like listenership of the podcast. Okay, so the first three are books that were previously mentioned on our most anticipated books of July episode. So first up is When We Believe in Mermaids by Barbara O'Neill. And this is a women's fiction novel with some romantic elements about a woman who is trying to uncover the truth about her missing sister. Sarah talked about that a couple of weeks ago. We also have Sweep of the Blade, which is the fourth novel in the Ilona Andrews Innkeeper Chronicles series. And Natalia mentioned that. And then Amber is very excited about The Nickel Boys, which is the latest novel by Colson Whitehead. And that is historical fiction set in the Jim Crow era South. Okay, now we have books that no one has mentioned. I'm starting out with The Truth in Our Lies by Eliza Graham. This is out um, in Kindle this week. The audio isn't out until September 10th. It is a historical novel about a woman who works for a secret broadcasting agency after the Second World War. Um, I've heard a lot of good things about this author, and this book kind of intrigues me. I have a couple of her others here that I want to read at some point. So that, again, is The Truth in Our Lies by Eliza Graham. Next up is Cruel Legacy. And this is the third book in the Cruel series by K.A. Lind. This is another author that I haven't read, although I'm really intrigued by a couple of the series that she's currently writing. Um, I don't know a lot about the Cruel series. It looks like contemporary romance, which isn't always something that I love. But her blood type series looks super interesting to me. Um, It has to do with vampires. I'm thinking it might be like an urban fantasy. But this is *Cruel Legacy*, *Cruel* Book Three by K. A. Lind. Now this one is *The Girl in the Grave*, and it's the first book in the Beth Adams series by Helen Pfeiffer. And it's about a forensic pathologist who has been in hiding for the past year, and we don't know why, but. She comes out of hiding to investigate this discovery of a teenage girl buried in a stranger's grave. So this again is The Girl in the Grave, Beth Adams 1, and it is by Helen Pfeiffer. And I apologize for the kind of obsessive meowing um, that you hear. I'm not sure what's going on with the kitty cat this evening. All right. If you are a lover of historical romance, I'm guessing that you're familiar with the work of Joanna Lindsay. She was one of the first historical romance authors that I read. Her latest novel is called Temptation's Darling and it is out this week. Um, It's a standalone. I really enjoy her Mallory Anderson books. Um, I haven't read a standalone of hers in quite a while. But I do still kind of keep track of what she's coming out with. So this, again, is Temptations Darling by Joanna Lindsay. Jasmine Guillory is releasing the third novel in her wedding date series. This is called The Wedding Party. And she has been getting a lot of attention over the past year or so. Um, The wedding date was her first novel, followed up by The Proposal, and then this is The Wedding Party. And if you love contemporary romance, then chances are very good that you will want to check out Jasmine Guillory. How about a thriller? Thrillers are great, at least most of them are. So this is called Tell Me Everything. It's by Cambria Brockman. It is set at a university in New England, and a murder that occurs there tears apart a group of friends, one of whom is playing a dangerous game. So that looks really intriguing. I want to check it out. And it again is Tell Me Everything by Cambria Brockman. I just finished reading the book that I'm about to tell you about. It's The Other Mrs. Miller, and it's the debut novel by Allison Dixon. And it is a very twisty novel of domestic suspense about two women who are watching each other. And you don't really get to know why until you're quite a ways into the story. But it is super fast-paced, very twisty. I loved it a lot. And I'm hoping that the rest of the thriller-loving world embraces this book the way that I did. It, again, is The Other Mrs. Miller, and it's by Alison Dixon. So, Molly O'Keefe is known for writing contemporary romances, and I think she's also written some erotic romance. But she is now coming out with her first women's fiction title. It's called The McAvoy Sisters Book of Secrets. She's writing it under the name Molly Fader, and it is out this week. Um, It's about a mother and her two daughters who are kind of estranged from one another, but do need to get back in touch and kind of put their differences to rest when their mother um, is dealing with a health crisis. So that is The McAvoy Sisters, Book of Secrets, and it is by Molly Fader, which is a pseudonym of author Molly O'Keefe. I have been a big fan of the Kate Burkholder series by Linda Castillo for probably the last 10 years or so. Um, It is a series about a, a police chief, who grew up Amish but has left the community and is now working at a small police department and kind of straddling the line between the English and the Amish. Um, the 11th book in the series is called Shamed, and it is out this week, and I am very, very, very excited. Um, this is a series, I guess technically you wouldn't have to read it in order Um, although I think you'd have a better understanding of Kate and all of the things that make her tick if you started back at the beginning with Sworn to Silence. But this is Shamed, Kate Burkholder, number 11, and it's by Linda Castillo. How about some historical fiction So this is another one where the audio doesn't come out until September, but it is out um, in Kindle this week. It's The Girls of Pearl Harbor by Soraya M. Lane, and this is the story of four nurses whose lives are irrevocably changed by the Pearl Harbor attack. So I'm not sure in what ways they're changed, but if you want to find out, you will have to give this one a read. It is The Girls of Pearl Harbor by Soraya M. Lane. And last but not least, I am really excited about this next novel. It's called Midnight at the Blackbird Cafe, and it's by Heather Weber. And it looks to be kind of a small-town story with some romance in it, but what makes it the most interesting to me is the fact that it has some magical realism kind of woven into the story. So I do want to check it out. I don't always love books like this. Sometimes I feel like the magical realism kind of gets in my way a little bit. But I'm still eager to check this out. It is Midnight at the Blackbird Cafe. And it is by Heather Weber. All right. So that is all I have today. As I said, things were a little thin on the ground this week, which is a shame. But I guess not every week can be a huge release week. Even so, I hope you have found at least a few things to tempt you this week.